Before we begin, we'd like to make you aware that the following episode mentions physical and emotional trauma, substance use disorder, addiction, and overdose. You know, every once in a while, I'll have somebody come up and say, oh, you saved my life. You, you know, I overdosed. You gave me naloxone. I was like, I didn't save your life. You saved your life. I gave you another opportunity to save your own life. You know, they have to make, they got to do the hard lift. They got to do the hard work. You know, naloxone gives them that opportunity. But they can't choose to make that change if they're not alive. I'm Ariana Masagi, and this is Appalachian Care Chronicles, a podcast bringing you stories from every corner of West Virginia's health sector. Join me as we journey alongside a variety of problem solvers, change makers, and daily helpers, all working behind the scenes and on the front lines to care for our communities. Together, we'll explore what they do day to day, the steps that got them there, and the big whys that continue to draw them back. How, in the face of some of the most challenging situations possible, do they manage to keep themselves and the rest of us from falling apart? Far from predictable, the paths they've walked are full of twists and surprises, discovery and purpose. This podcast is for anyone who's ever even thought about going into the healthcare field or has a passion for caring for others in times of need. Welcome to the fourth and final episode in season one of Appalachian Care Chronicles. Today, we'll be hearing from somebody many of you are probably already familiar with, one of my personal idols, Jan Rader. I first learned about Jan after the Netflix documentary Heroin was released in 2017. She gave a TED Talk in 2019, and shortly thereafter, I was hooked on her story and her work. She has saved so many lives and enriched even more and she's a West Virginian who decided to stay. Jan's career is a long and storied one, and her dedication to combating the opioid epidemic, along with compassion fatigue among first responders, has inspired and provided a roadmap for folks engaging in the same fight, not just in West Virginia, but across the country and even the world. The first woman to lead a professional fire department in West Virginia, Jan was named a Time 100 Most Influential Person in 2018, And, though she recently retired as Huntington's fire chief, continues to spearhead innovative solutions to some of West Virginia's most pressing healthcare challenges as director of the Huntington Mayor's Council on Public Health and Drug Control Policy. In the face of both searing criticism and soaring praise, Jan has stayed the course, remaining laser-focused on her mission to save and improve lives. up with Jan at her office in the basement of Huntington City Hall. They were renovating a portion of the building, so we walked together to find a quiet place to talk. I like neat buildings. 
course, I'm embarrassing to travel with because I check out the fire alarms and <laughs> fire safety, and I don't want to stay above the eighth floor because that's how the fire trucks, the ladder trucks can get you. Yeah, yes. And then I always count how many doors it is to an exit, like to a staircase, because you can't, you know, if there's a fire, you can't take an elevator. So, and then. Like, okay, I'm like, okay, so fire, I'm going to go left, I'm going to crawl, and I'm going to feel four doors, and there's the stairs, you know. It's important stuff. Yes, it is. We had a, I remember a fire when maybe had a year and a half on, and uh, a five-year-old girl was with her grandma, and they got out of the house, and her grandma's like, I forgot my purse, and she wanted to go back in, and she had recently had fire safety with fire truck coming to the school she's like no grandma you can't go back in for anything so you know she got a, we gave her a certificate for saving her grandma's life you know keeping her from going back in that's kind of neat so yeah sharing memorable life-saving stories comes effortlessly to jan but as to how she got her start in this work few people know that one you know, when I tell this story, people think I'm crazy or they think I've made it up. But, it, you know, it's it and it does sound kind of corny, but uh, it is an actual <laughs> event that started this. Um, I was working in the jewelry business and I was working at Tyson Corner Center in McLean, Virginia, right outside of D.C. I was assistant manager in a jewelry store called uh, Town Silver and Goldsmith. And one afternoon, we had a bay window where the, the jewelers sat, where they could, you could watch your ring being resized. And I was up there talking to one of the jewelers, and I watched a lady turn blue and collapse, and it was pretty much in the front of the store, in the doorway of the store. I felt helpless because I didn't know CPR. Uh, two young ladies with small kids stopped and did CPR on her. I called 911 and stayed on the phone with them, and... The fire department showed up, and there was a woman paramedic. Uh, they worked on her. They got a normal sinus rhythm back. I found out that later. But, it, you know, I just didn't want to feel helpless like that anymore. So within a couple of weeks, I signed up for a CPR class. It was with a bunch of dentists. It was hilarious. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, within, uh, I, I was a big runner at the time, and so some of the guys that I ran with in my apartment complex were firefighters, so I started talking to them about it, and they are like, oh, yeah, you could do this. we got a lot of women that, that uh, are firefighters. So I signed up for an EMT basic class through Fairfax County Fire and Rescue. They have a volunteer program. And uh, then I applied for a career position, and at the time my brother was a minister, back here in Huntington, and uh, he he sent me an application. He said, I hear you want to be a firefighter. They're giving the test here. Why don't you come home? And so I came back and took the test, and they offered me a job before Fairfax County, Virginia did, so I moved home. This has been a common thread in the stories that we've heard from our guests. There was a moment where they were touched by the opportunity to help someone in crisis, and they followed that calling. Jan's path could have led in so many different ways, but lucky for all of us here in West Virginia, it led her home. I grew up right across the river in Ironton, Ohio, um, but near the tri-state area is my home. There's something special about Appalachia. Appalachian people are very unique. We're very warm. We're, we're willing to give you the shirt off our backs. 
we work well together. And I think that speaks volumes with what the city of Huntington has been able to do with uh, the opioid crisis and creating solutions that are actually working. Uh, whereas other areas of the country have not. <laughs> In fact, you know, we have people come from all over the country to see what we're doing here, and they can duplicate a lot of things that we do, but they cannot duplicate the collaboration that we have. I mean, we genuinely like each other. You know, we partner with organizations and uh, develop friendships that uh, is very unique, I think, to this, this region, Appalachia in general. People like Jan make me optimistic about our community and our future. It's comforting to know that there are people who are prioritizing living in Appalachia and making a better place for the amazing people who live here. I started working for the Huntington Fire Department as a first responder in 1994, August of 94. Took a paramedic course uh, while I was working for the fire department on my days off and uh, then became a fire and EMS instructor and would do that also on my days off. But then at 40, I went to nursing school. After nursing school, I worked on my days off at Cabell Huntington Hospital in the emergency room. Did that for about eight years until I was too busy with my position at the fire department to work a second job. So retired from the fire department February of 2022, after 27 and a half years of service. Now I work on the substance use disorder issue full-time. When I came on in 94, it was August of 94, it was probably a good five years before I saw a significant number of deaths in the field. And the majority of the time that I saw those deaths, they were typically elderly, uh, natural causes or heart attack, stroke. You know, occasionally I'd see a car wreck with a young person. But I had time to rebound and recover from that, okay? Fast forward as the opioid epidemic was unfolding. You know, we, there was so, there still is so much death from overdoses. Our first responders today are not just dealing with young death from overdoses. They are dealing with the deaths of their classmates, people they grew up with, and maybe even a family member. So it's a very different um, climate than it was in 94. I had the ability to watch the opioid epidemic unfold in two different arenas from two different vantage points, which was, I think, a little bit unique. Not only was I seeing it from a fire truck as a firefighter, but I was also working on my days off as an emergency room nurse at a local hospital. Going to nursing school at 40, I still didn't learn hardly anything about addiction. So what I have learned has been from the street in talking to those that are suffering. Uh, a lot of people that our first responders don't want to spend a lot of time getting to know who they're dealing with. They want to say, you know, save their life and move on. But I wanted to understand why this was happening. How did they get here? Where, what can I do to make your situation better? What do I do that makes your situation worse? And you learn a lot that way. 
I had a young lady that I was taking care of in the emergency room, and she was in crisis, but she was in the throes of addiction, and um, she was doing things that she wouldn't typically do because of uh, the substance use disorder that she was experiencing. I had a, another nurse that helped me with her, and, and we spent a lot of extra time with her and, and worked diligently to get her the help she needed so that she felt like her life mattered and um, that she, she is a good person. You know, I think there's a lot of st stigmatizing that surrounds substance use disorder that is unnecessary, and people think it's a moral failing, but it's not. You know, we were taught that by society, you know, this war on drugs. You know, there's a lot of fallacies out there. But, but you know, she, all she wanted to do was be a good wife and, and a mom, and she has been clean ever since. She got into treatment that she needed. Years down the road, she reached out to me and thanked me for being nice to her. But, you know, kindness is free. I don't know why we go through life, you know, being mean to each other, you know, it's kind of um, unnecessary. Let's take some time to learn a little bit more about addiction. Addiction is a chronic relapsing disorder characterized by compulsive drug or substance use despite harmful consequences. The concept of addiction as a medical condition began to take shape in the 18th and 19th centuries, with the emergence of theories connecting substance use to physical dependence and withdrawal symptoms. During the early 20th century, addiction began to be viewed as a moral failing, reflecting weak character or lack of willpower. This perspective led to punitive approaches, such as criminalization and social stigmatization, rather than recognizing addiction as a health issue. In the late 20th century and into the 21st century, there has been a growing recognition that addiction is a complex disease with biological, psychological, and social factors at play. The field of neuroscience has provided valuable insights into the brain's reward system and how substances can hijack it, leading to compulsive use and loss of control. This understanding has fueled a shift towards viewing addiction as a chronic condition that requires medical intervention, support, and long-term management. With proper treatment and support, people can and do recover. Jan knows this and has spent most of her career working to shift the mindset among first responders in our community more broadly towards those who are suffering. You know, I think too many people are treated like second-class citizens, like they don't matter, that their life is crap because of, of this brain disorder that they have. And I think that's the wrong way to look at it. But I understand the frustration, you know. Um, and I try to meet not only people suffering from substance use disorder where they are, I try to meet citizens where they are, um, first responders where they are. And I think that's Im imperative. Sometimes it's a communication breakdown. I understand the burnout. You know, you go to the same person over and over again. They overdose, they overdose, they overdose. And, and people say and do things in frustration. They say, oh, this is just ridiculous. You know, why don't they get their lives together? But, you know, in reality, 
um, when I look back at my career, I have yet to have a compliant patient. You know, uh, the person who comes into the emergency room with a diabetic emergency because they weigh 500 pounds and they refuse to test their blood sugar on a regular basis or use their insulin, they're not treated like a second-class citizen or like they're a moral failing. But yet we want somebody who's suffering from a brain disorder who might be homeless and not know where their next meal is going to be from. They, we want them to be compliant with whatever the doctor says. And, you know, that's not treating the whole person. And, and, and we need to do that. So there's frustration with your first responders. There's frustration with your medical community because they're supposed to fix things. And if they can't fix it, then they're frustrated. That's why I had to change my mindset to I'm not a fixer. I'm not helping. I'm serving. Okay, so that's rejuvenating. I'm on the same plane with that person. And I'm not here to save their life long term. I can't do that. Only they can do that. But I can give them this naloxone and give them another opportunity to save their own life and make a choice to go into recovery or treatment. Appalachian Care Chronicles is made possible thanks to the West Virginia Higher Education Policy Commission and Claude Worthington Benedim Foundation, serving communities in West Virginia and southwestern Pennsylvania since 1944. was the first year in recorded history that more first responders died by suicide than died in the line of duty. Some refer to these deaths as deaths of despair. The nature of their work exposes them to traumatic events, high-stress situations, and human suffering. There's also a culture that prioritizes self-sacrifice and downplays the importance of self-care. First responders often place the needs of others above their own, neglecting their well-being in the process. This selfless dedication, while admirable, can take a toll on their mental and emotional health if not addressed. We had 1,831 non-fatal overdoses in the county, and 85% of those were in the city limits. We had 200 deaths, 202 deaths. Just basic math, probably the average firefighter saw five young deaths a month. You know, so that's a lot. That's a lot. That's not time to recover. Um, you know, so there's there's a lot of trauma there. You know, so if you're not helping your helpers, they can't help others. At a certain point, Jan began to notice the toll this was taking on her team. And she realized that perhaps in order to best care for their patients, Huntington's first responders needed some help caring for themselves. Coming up through the ranks of the fire department, it was pretty obvious to me that the world around us was changing. There was no emphasis on self-care for first responders. You know, we're the caped crusaders. We're supposed to go out and save the day. And uh, then the opioid crisis came along. And, you know, you can save a life in the moment, but you can't save that life long term, not from the front lines anyway. 
That started taking a toll on the first responders. It became more stressful as the years went by to be a first responder. In 2017, we had the opportunity to apply for a Mayor's Challenge grant, and four or five of us got together to decide what challenge we were going to tackle. And we decided as a group to tackle compassion fatigue within our first responder ranks. We were selected to win a million dollars to develop the program. How are you? Good, we are at the Compass Wellness Center. In fact, when we got the million dollars, you know, it couldn't go to build a facility, but our first responders, that's one thing they requested. They wanted a facility where they could work out with no non-first responders there because we know, uh, you know, we're together, we know each other. Um, and so we raised the funds. Most of it came through the city, but we had fundraisers. And... Um, now we have this facility where people can work out 24-7. Every first responder in the city and our retirees, you know, have the ability to use the facility. A lot of the exercise equipment pieces are job-specific for police or fire. So, for instance, I'll show you. This, for instance, simulates using the rope to raise a ladder on a fire scene. So it works all your muscles that you need to raise and lower a ladder. Uh, we have the massage chairs, uh, chiropractors, and other medical personnel that will volunteer their time to provide massages or chiropractic services on specific days. So this is a meditation room created by Amy Jefferson, and it is wonderful. It's got uh, a, like a waterfall feature, uh, so you can hear running water. The lighting is very low. On the TV, it's hooked up into a YouTube channel where you can put up different meditations. And she's got a sound bowl, too. Isn't that lovely? Sometimes after yoga class, I'll just go in there and, and do a 10-15 minute meditation and just relax. Or I'll go sit in the massage chair. That's That's the bomb diggity too. And it's just four first responders, not even their family can come here. You know, if you go to the Y, you're asked a gazillion questions. Hey, were you on that fire last night? Or what happened at that shooting? And, and um, you know, you can come here and you don't have to worry about any of that. So uh, you're amongst your peers and, and that's huge. We're treating the whole first responder, and our goal is to make this um, the norm for new people coming into the ranks, that they uh, know that they are appreciated, and we care about their well-being, and we want them to retire with not just their body intact, but their mind and their spirit intact. You know, we're teaching people how to fight fire, and there might be 20 different methods of fighting this specific fire or that specific fire. So why aren't we treating them or teaching them how to deal with the trauma that they see? You know, it was something that was neglected. It was a missing ingredient. And uh, so it's, it's a wonderful program and I think it's going to be a game changer uh, for first responders throughout the country.
These interventions that are being implemented in the city of Huntington are a great example of the kinds of things that could benefit healthcare workers all over. There's a lot of discussion and work being done at the administrative level to try and address the burnout crisis in medicine. Only a few years ago did shifts greater than 28 hours and weeks greater than 80 hours on average become illegal in residency programs. These kinds of changes are what will help solve workplace issues. And in the meantime, personal self-care acts will get us through. I would have embraced it if there had been a program like this in existence um, when I came on the job early. I think it would have helped me maneuver through my career in a more healthy mindset. You know, I'm not saying I'm not healthy now, but you know, sometimes you see things that are just not normal for a person to see. And you have to be able to handle that. So I think providing the skill set for a young person who's entering the ranks to be able to deal with what they will see, uh, it's, it's key to recruitment and retention. But more importantly, we want them to be healthy, uh, whole body, when they retire. Jan is right. The job requires that you see things people are not meant to see. They're inherently difficult for a person to deal with. Part of the future for medicine and all the other helper professions is learning and experimenting with the best ways humans can work, prioritizing the human experience over what we consider productivity. Sustainability means more than just materials. It means keeping the workforce in the field and happy about it. I think this is a very exciting time. You know, you're going to see and experience the best that life has to offer and the worst that life has to offer. That's a lesson you can't read in any textbook. It's a great time to serve because you can make a difference right now. Leaders are watching and learning that we need to take care of our frontline workers. Again, it's a great time to be a first responder or to be on the front lines medically. You know, our Compass program has three giant massage chairs that you can just go relax in. You know, I would love to see that be the norm in every hospital in the state of West Virginia, uh, a meditation room. Um, you know, so I think that uh, it's an exciting time. You, you know, regardless of what's going on around you, you got to be happy with what you're doing yourself. And um, I think that's been very cathartic to me to, to have the mindset of being in service to my community. Because I don't do this for praise from Mayor Williams. I don't do this from praise from a citizen. I know I make a difference when I come to work. And uh, even if I just touch one life a day, um, it's a good day. It's a good day. Appalachian Care Chronicles is a production of the West Virginia Higher Education Policy Commission Health Sciences Division. 
Special thanks to the Claude Worthington Benedum Foundation and Huntington Mayor's Office for their support. And of course, a huge thank you to all of our season one guests, Jan, Anitra, Heidi, and Shaquille for sharing their stories and caring for our communities and families in times of need. For more information about educational opportunities related to healthcare in West Virginia, visit appcarepod.com. That's appcarepod.com. I'm Ariana Misagi, and this is Appalachian Care Chronicles. <laughs>